This podcast was recorded at 9 a.m. Jakarta time on 16 November. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the program. Welcome to Reverend Matthew Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton from Straits Times, Singapore. Kevin O'Rourke from Reformacy Weekly. Peter, introduce yourself. You're part of the gang now. Peter Mumford from UAGE Group. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Great to have you. We have a special pod uh, to commemorate uh, the Summit Silly Season that is in full swing. Now uh, the, the circus has moved to, uh, to G20. The G20 uh, has uh, come to Bali. That was on the heels of ASEAN in Phnom Penh. And um, I think APEC is coming up in, in Bangkok. Well, the, I mean, it's everything is happening and it's all here to Southeast Asia. Yep, three summits. <laughs> three summits, bang, 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 all in the neighborhood. And Southeast Asia has arrived. And all right after COP in Egypt. I guess that's really the first question out of the gate. I mean, it kind of, kind of felt we've been talking about the centrality of, of, of ASEAN. Wow, we have it in spades now. I mean, maybe just coincidence, but uh, oh, it, it, it would certainly help the, the world's attention uh, is, is on the region. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, it is partly coincidence, of course, that Indonesia is chairing G20 uh, this year. And Thailand is chairing APEC because those two summits could be taking place elsewhere in the world. So it's a coincidence that we've got all three, along with the ASEAN, ASEAN bilateral summits, East Asia summits, uh, taking place within one week in Southeast Asia. So yes, it, it's uh, ASEAN centrality uh, in action, uh, living, breathing ASEAN centrality. And it does certainly raise the profile of the region uh, and of the countries that are hosting summits. Where Hun Sen wasn't able to come to the meeting, right? He tested positive for COVID. They kicked him out. I think he arrived yes. and tested and he had to go. That's correct. I mean, there is a risk that all these summits will be super spreader events, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, we just wanted to get your thoughts, Peter. I'm really glad you could spare a few minutes to, to talk with us. Um, what, what are some of the, I don't know how closely you've been following all, all of this, but um, I mean, for me, the standouts, have been uh, obviously the Biden Xi uh, summit, which is good. I mean, it went on for three hours, and I don't think there was a communique at the end of it. But they sure did talk like adults when they left. Like we've, you know, the world is big enough for both of us. Um, it was, you know, we've we've got a, a a good personal relationship. We want to build on that. We want to put a floor under this. Let's let's move on. Um, we had. Uh, Elon Musk talking about maybe kind of sort of investing in Indonesia um, for EVs. Uh, I think he was some references to Twitter um, working uh, very, very long days, seven days a week. Poor guy, poor, poor billionaire. And uh, Lavrov turning tail, running, maybe having some heart issues uh, around the time Kiev was burning. Um, what's the standout to you so far? I think compared to uh, what were admittedly very low expectations, I think so far at least uh, the G20 in Indonesia is actually modestly surpassing those expectations and can probably be uh, 
chalked up for Jokovic as something of a success. I mean, certainly, certainly, as you say, the standout was the Biden-Xi bilateral, which, of course, is really nothing to do with Indonesia or other G20 countries. Um, and again, you know, expectations going to that were extremely low, and it seems to have slightly beaten those expectations of being a kind of mild positive for global stability. I mean, Biden went into it saying he wanted to set a floor for relationship with China, so obviously not seeking you know, high ambition there. And it seems that I think they've achieved that. As you noted, I mean, Biden and Xi have met many times in the past. And I think Biden believes he has some sort of personal connection with Xi. And that therefore, it was critical that they get in the same room. Um, and I think, you know, our take is that probably Biden has some sort of, I don't know if respect is the right word, but understanding sort of uh, respect for, for Xi. Uh, and probably it's reciprocated. Um, if you look at uh, sort of the outcomes, yes, I mean, it was a long meeting with not necessarily any tangible outcomes, but I think it's, as I say, put a floor onto the relationship, probably been sufficient to at least slow the pace of deterioration in US-China ties. If not, you know, it's not going to reverse the trend and make them best of friends suddenly. Um, and I think it's it's potentially created a pathway for a return of discussions maybe not quite cooperation, but leaning towards cooperation on global issues such as climate and, and health. And some of these issues that, you know, the US and China were very keen to cooperate on, but had been derailed in recent months, you know, following Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and China's reaction to that. So I think a, a modest step forward. Well, you know, um, she, she was talking with, with, with other sort of Western leaders, too. I think he was uh, talking with the Albanese of, of Australia. And there was some words to the effect from the foreign ministry in, in Beijing that, um, you know, that's uh, put the, you know, the past behind us. I'm some, that's, uh, let's, let's, let's move forward. Sorry about all those, all those um, sanctions and, and embargoes um, on key exports. I don't know what's happened with that, but I, I wondered if there might be a change in tact on the part uh, the Chinese, for a few reasons, well, he's come through his uh, his party congress five years, uh, and he's very comfortably ensconced for at least another term, if not for life. Biden um, uh, has had a uh, historic win uh, in the midterm. Uh, Albanese elected with the with, with the uh, with, with the majority, and she's partner <laughs> Putin. Not doing so well. So I wondered if there is a pivot in line with the way the winds are blowing, she. Yeah, I mean, there's something to that. I mean, fundamentally, of course, China is grappling with a significantly slowing economy. Uh, it's got challenges in uh, how it sort of seeks to gradually phase out zero COVID. I mean, it's somewhat relaxed restrictions a little bit, but it's not moved away from its zero COVID stance. Um, and all kinds of difficulties around that. So really, you know, from Xi Jinping's perspective, probably China right now can't afford to have, you know, lots of antagonistic relationships with other countries around the world. Um, so yes, a little bit of smoothing with those ties will be helpful. But I don't think it's changing the structure or approach of Chinese foreign policy completely. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the recent party congress where you know, then Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who was kind of like one of the key so-called wolf warrior diplomats, um, was promoted. 
Um, so there's no sign in terms of the personnel shift or, you know, she's consolidation of power that they're going to fundamentally move away from their foreign policy position. But right now, at this moment, yes, I think there's a there's a desire to see if um, China can be portraying itself as a sort of responsible global actor uh, and also to try and, you know, avoid further escalating tensions uh, at a time when there's already significant economic challenges in China, as there are in many countries. Yeah, I noticed that there's uh, this real conundrum uh, faced by some of the G7 leaders where they're trying to engage with China, uh, especially on issues that are so sensitive, like human rights and uh, Taiwan, um, and to, to take a tough line. But at the same time, uh, they also very much need to engage China, uh, not just for economic reasons, but also to collaborate on climate change. Um, so... Is is that conundrum going to be sort of a defining trait, you think, uh, in the years ahead, Peter? Or is there some sort of uh, way out? Yeah, I mean, I would say that if you compare over the last 10 years, there's been a significant shift in most Western countries towards a more hawkish stance on China. Um, and that said, uh, of course, there's still a recognition that most of these countries is for the reasons you said we have to engage with China. Um, it does vary, you know, from individual leader to individual leader. I mean, we've seen multiple changes of prime minister in the UK, for example, and the current prime minister is less hawkish on China than the one that was there a couple of months ago. Um, and obviously in Australia, you know, you've had a slightly different approach uh, after the change of prime minister there. So, of course, personnel changes in different governments will be a factor as well. Uh, and as we're talking about, you know, the general state of the global economy right now, uh, means people are particularly wary of uh, excessively sort of antagonizing other players and trying to look for common ways to try and get out of this shared global economic challenge. But I think the sort of suspicions around China's motivations and actions is not reducing. Um, it's just different countries will balance this in different ways and different individual leaders within different countries will balance it different ways. Yeah, and uh, I noticed uh, Canada is in a... Yeah quandary because uh, they've got uh, quite a lot of rancor uh, in their relationship with China since 2018. Uh, but I think they're co-chairing uh, some uh, some work with China on the COP27 at the same time. So it's a very tricky balancing act. Apparently they've set up, the Chinese have set up sort of semi-police stations across Canada. Yeah. There's a uh, Across several Western the, the Chinese call them service centers. When I hear service center, I think <laughs> gas station. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, wait, what? <laughs> like, incredible. Um, incredible. Uh, you know, uh, Putin didn't show up. Uh, uh, the uh, foreign minister uh, Lavrov was here for a very short while. Um, uh, there was a report in the AP that uh, he had to check in the hospital um, and left uh, shortly before um, the or uh, around about the missile attack across uh, Ukraine that killed two people um, and hit residential buildings. Uh, possibly one of some fragments landed in, in Poland, which is a NATO country. That's a bit, bit troubling. Um, what's your sense of the mood among 
uh, membership now G20 ASEAN in general um, Indonesia India were sort of softly softly an arm's length approach uh, to Russia um, really happy with the cheap oil um, do you think that there's sort of a cooling of relationships with, with Putin a less it's there's more of a cost to sitting on the fence now yeah, possibly. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, if you look at the G20, I mean, they're supposedly today uh, going to have an agreed communique, although things could change by the time the podcast goes out. But as we talk now, there is an agreed draft communique. Uh, a lot of people felt that going into the G20, it would be impossible to achieve a, an agreed communique. So if that is actually sort of issued, um, that will be considered a major success. Um, including for the hosts Indonesia, uh, that communique, I think, is is obviously not going to be very strong in its language on criticizing Russia, but it's sort of, I think it's pretty explicit in calling for, you know, no use of nuclear weapons, ending the war, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's slightly tougher. I think most Western diplomats who have been quoted have said that it's a bit tougher than they had expected, obviously not as tough as they would hope. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people are saying that India in particular has been quite a key player in helping to achieve this uh, consensus, at least consensus in terms of diplomatic words. Um, and so I think that in itself is interesting. I mean, we can interpret that as perhaps a slight shift of India's position. Um, I mean, it could be potentially overinterpreted. Um, but India has in the last couple of months been using slightly tougher wording in terms of uh, towards Russia and towards uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, if not going as far as, you know, most Western countries are or Japan or Singapore, et cetera. So I think that is interesting. Uh, I think, to be honest, it's probably more down to India and others rather than Indonesia in terms of, you know, getting that uh, agreed communique. Um, which that's not to totally dismiss the host's role. Which others, Peter? Yeah, I think, I mean, India is the mostly the one that is pointed to as being a country that's sort of huge size uh, and being able to control people. I mean, obviously, China itself will have agreed to slightly tougher language. So that's interesting on, you know, China's position that it hasn't insisted on absolutely nothing in the communique. Hmm. Um, but I think that's India is the one that's really being pointed to as well. I mean, we haven't, I haven't seen the in, inner workings of uh, the discussions, but I suspect there will be some other countries, you know, other emerging markets uh, that are also starting to shift their position. But I haven't seen anything suggest that Indonesia is uh, dramatically altering its position, although like everyone else, it's very concerned about, you know, the impact on food security. You know, Jokowi, I think, emphasized fertilizers uh, in his opening remarks and concerns about, you know, the lag effect for next year, etc. Maybe Turkey and South Africa uh, will be the more problematic ones, but maybe Turkey's position will have shifted because of events with the uh, food embargo uh, recently. And then Brazil, of course, being absent, maybe uh, is a factor in favor of a communique. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at uh, you know, the East Asia Summit, for example, they didn't really get an agreed uh, communique, I believe. I think uh, I'll check that the Cambodia chair, I think, had to issue a chairman statement. Mm. Um, and, you know, let's see what happens at APEC. Um, APEC, 
most APEC minister meetings so far this year have failed to get an agreed communique. Mm. So actually, if you look at international meetings this so far this year, if the G20 ends, as it currently looks like it will, with an agreed communique, I think Jokobi can, although it's, as I say, it's probably more down to others such as India and some of the countries you mentioned, Jokobi can chalk that up as a success yeah. that at least exceeds expectations. Yeah, definitely. Um, Given the and I think more broadly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, more broadly, I think Indonesia comes out of this uh, looking pretty strong. Provided Lavrov doesn't die of a heart attack. I mean, that's an important caveat. I think he's somewhere over Kazakhstan now. I mean, it's, okay. yeah, he's not on he's not, not, not he's not on Indonesian soil anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, his boss is uh, I mean, really the poor guy. Is Never has there been a harder job for a foreign minister, I would say. It's not, it's not a gig I would want. And, you know, the yacht's got nowhere to go. I mean, you can't go to London anymore. Uh, what are you going to do? What's it's systematically antagonizing every country in the world. Yeah, he's got to work. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, foreign ministers with a hard gig, Retno, holy cow. What 2022 must have been, uh, she, she been, must have been putting in some, um, some, some long hours, long days. Uh, but wow, fire. pulled it off. I mean, strong men didn't show up. Oh, well. Um, a couple of them didn't, but, uh, got the main one, she and Biden and we cooled down. Thank, well, thankfully, maybe because of the Australian election. Uh, the, the the Aussies showed up, and when the Aussies showed up, the Canadians are going to show up. All in all, looking pretty good. What do you say? Yep. What's a you know Indonesia standing in the world, and what does it mean? Maybe going for? Do they have a taste for uh, having some diplomatic clout? Yeah, I think as I was saying earlier, I mean, I would chalk this up as at least a modest success, if not more. Um, I think it's hard to argue this this summit's a failure. I mean, they benefit from the fact that expectations were exceedingly low. Um, so that kind of makes it easier to to beat a bit. That's what yes, I, mean. I think you know. That's what I do with this podcast. Has. I said, I said. I mean, <laughs> expectations low. <laughs> There's always this. I mean, there is always this issue in international summits uh, in terms of what exactly is the host role and how much of the outcome is due to the host versus um, you know other big players, and it's always quite hard to ascertain. But nevertheless. People will look at you know what comes out of the G20 in its entirety, and you know Jokowi is Retno uh, and others are obviously hosting this, and then Indonesia deserves credit for that. Um, I think if you look at you know, if we come out of this with obviously a a Biden Xi meeting, which is not G20 itself, that exceeds expectations, but was facilitated and took place in Bali. If we see you know contrary to expectations an agreed communique coming out of the G20, which at least includes some language, if not very, very tough language, on Russia, Ukraine. Um, and then you combine it with the fact, of course, that one of the other kind of key outcomes for Indonesia is the sign-off of you know, $20 billion of financing for the low-carbon energy transition from other countries. It's a sort of just energy transition partnership. I think there was a separate ADB loan as well for, uh, for, for coal sort of decommissioning. Um, so, you know, you put those things together, uh, you know, that's a pretty good story. Well, I, I always think it's important to focus on the cup being half empty. And uh, so uh, what I would say is that uh, 
Well, there's nothing. <laughs> the Democrats only didn't get. My, my, worry, my, my concern about uh, this is that Indonesia does indeed emerge with increased stature and clout and it's in, in international affairs and it has more savvy in the way that it conducts itself and that it may use that towards some unproductive ends economically, uh, especially with regards to defying WTO uh, rules, especially on you know, sort of export restrictions on resources or non-tariff import barriers and that kind of thing. So, Yeah, we seem to have something of a role reversal. I mean, I'm the Brit and you're the American, so you're supposed to be the glass half full and I'm supposed to be the glass <laughs> half empty, but we're kind of doing it the other way around. Much obliged. Hey, podcast listeners, Jeff here. If you appreciate what we do here at Reformacy Dispatch, please consider supporting us. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Reformacy and choose the amount of money you want to donate. Kevin, Stephen, and I love doing the show, but we're looking for some money to hire a new editor, pay podcast hosting fees and, and licensing. That's buymeacoffee.com slash Reformacy. Okay, here's the show. Uh, segue, uh, a hard shift. Um, the Malaysian election is coming up, and I am so sorry. I lost track somewhere around my year. <laughs> 2005. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're right across the the water from, from Singapore, so it pays my bills. So what's the latest? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Malaysian politics is... Uh, simultaneously incredibly complex uh, and at the same time sometimes nothing really changes and I think you know this is always the challenge so obviously we have uh, an election at the end of this week uh, the weekend Um, you know this was called uh, early elections did not have to take place until the third quarter of next year it's essentially happening early because of a couple of factors, one of which is uh, essentially corruption cases which are hanging over the party president of UMNO, the key party in the, the ruling coalition, and the sort of the grand dam of Malaysian politics. Uh, and so Zahid Hamidi, the UMNO leader, uh, who of course is not the prime minister, uh, is eager for polls sooner rather than later um, because he thinks that increases the chances of shaking off all these corruption charges if they can expand their control of the next government. Um, at the same time, I mean, that's the sort of the personal motivation, if you like, and it's not just the heat. There's other leaders in the party that have got cases that they might wish would disappear. Um, and then that's the sort of personal motivation. And the tactical motivation uh, for earlier elections is uh, that in recent state elections, uh, UMNO and its uh, Barisan National Partners have done very well. Not very well in terms of the popular vote, um, but they improved the popular vote slightly in the last few state elections, but very well in terms of increasing their seat count. Um, And so, you know, and the opposition is very fragmented at the moment as well. So those are the tactical reasons. I don't give the opposition time to get its act together. Um, But PM Ismail, uh, Sabri Yaakov, of course, who is not the who's from UMNO but not the party president, actually would have preferred to go to polls next year, give the time for the economy to recover, avoid, you know, the concerns about high inflation right now, 
Um, the other issue is that uh, we're we're heading into, or we've, in some would argue, we've already started monsoon season for much of Malaysia, um, and there's a lot of concern that essentially there'll be flooding these days. I mean, there is flooding already, uh, and that could get even worse by the weekend, uh, and that could affect you know people getting to polls, etc., uh, and something of a backlash against Umno uh, for calling elections at this time of year. Normally, Malaysia wouldn't do elections at the end of the year, the start of the year, uh, because of monsoon sort of issues. So it's there's a lot going on. Yeah, I didn't have the microphone up. Um, what's the mood like of the electorate? There's been a lot of turno- turnover at the, uh, at the top, um, and it just, it, it doesn't feel like they've, got a, a hold of the corruption issues that got um, the last guy out um, at the last election. Uh, they must be, they, they, there must be apathy. Are, are, they, are they engaged at all? Will, will they go to the polls? Can somebody can, can yeah, I claim think, a credible mandate at the end of all this? I mean, apathy is probably the, the, the main, um, I would say the, the main emotion amongst many voters I mean, certainly, of course, people in Malaysia are following this extremely closely. But having sort of worked on you know, from afar both elections, I would say that there is much less international interest in this election in Malaysia than there was in 2018. I mean, that's somewhat understandable because in 2018, it was coming on the back of uh, the 1MDB scandal. Um, and then you had the sort of the return of the non Nigerian Mahathir um, to sort of make his kind of great political comeback. So it was two heavyweight fighters uh, kind of, you know, battling it out. Um, and, you know, would this end six decades of UMNO slash Barisan National rule in Malaysia? So it was an exciting story, which this time around, you know, the figures aren't quite as exciting in terms of the key leaders, um, you know. And there's, you know, there's also a chance that, uh, you know, by the time the, the the votes are counted, we end up where we started, and that you know we've got a very fragmented parliament. Uh, essentially, in this election, you've got three main coalitions, and so you've got UMNO and its Barisan National Coalition. You've got the Perakatan National Coalition, which is led by Pesatu, which is in government with UMNO and BN, but is actually sort of they're actually sort of antagonistic. And then you've got Pakatan Harapan, which is the opposition at the moment. Uh, and so those three coalitions are going to be fighting it out. And the question really is, which of those is going to be the largest? I mean, there are other parties and, and small coalitions as well, but they're the three main ones. And so, I mean, the likely result at the moment looks like essentially no one wins. You know, you know it's a hung parliament. The issue is going to be, which is, what's the relative size of the three coalitions? And therefore, um, which is going to be best place? to uh, form a government after the polls when you have the kind of Game of Thrones, sorry to use the cliche, uh, between all the parties and coalitions um, to negotiate a new kind of governing coalition. Um, and it just gets slightly sort of odd because most parties will work, you know, with most parties. I mean, what is, as you guys know very well, in Southeast Asia politics, there's not always a very strong left-right economic sort of ideological split, or in some cases not there at all. Um, you know, Malaysian politics mostly works on basis of race or religion um, with not a huge sort of difference in economic ideology. So within those sort of paradigms, you can have 
various different types of permutations of parties uh, working together. Um, you know, it looked like when the poll started, or sorry, when the campaign started, it was really Barisan Nationale's election to lose in the sense that they didn't look like they would get a majority, but they would be the largest coalition. Um, but they seem to have messed up quite a lot. So I think it's looking a bit more unpredictable now. Um, really, you know, Pakistan Harapan, the opposition, could come through and become the largest, the largest kind of coalition. Uh, and one of the factors that's holding Barisan Nationale back is alluded to, to what I was talking about earlier. One is a bit of backlash against, you know, elections during the flood uh, season, uh, monsoon. Uh, and also this this issue within UMNO of Ismail, the prime minister, versus Zahid, the party president. Um, and I think a, lo- a lot of voters are now sort of focusing on, actually, Zahid, he's the head of UMNO. If UMNO do really well, uh, he's probably going to try and take the premiership off Ismail. Uh, and, you know, what does that mean, given the, the corruption charges hanging over Zahid? So I think, you know, that is actually dragging down Umno and Barisan National a bit at the moment, uh, and also factional infighting uh, within the party has been a problem as well, because Zahid, as party president, is really the person who led on choosing the candidates that Umno put forward for the different constituency races, rather than Ismail, the prime minister. So Zahid, of course, has put more of his allies forward to run in races and reduce the number of Ismail's allies as well, which has just intensified this this concern among some that Zahid is positioning himself to then push Ismail out after the election and become prime minister himself. Now, what does that mean, given you know, his backstory? Uh, they're now trying to downplay that possibility because they recognize it's hurting them. So that's a long answer, but you can't do Malaysian politics in, a, in one sense. No, but, but then yeah, you've, yeah. Got, so you've got infighting in, in amongst the elites, an apathetic electorate. Um, you just have to look to Thailand to see what that, how that bodes for foreign investment and, you know, the country standing in the region. Um, these countries that were once uh, Thailand and Malaysia that, that were, you know, real economic powerhouses and going places are being left further behind. Uh, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, maybe Philippines, um, yeah, after, sure. after their election are, are it's amazing. Indonesia is roaring ahead. Um, what's, what's the, the, the portent for, for the, the, the investment scenario for places like Malaysia was, was such an uncertain result. Especially in a, in a Patakan Harapan scenario, Peter, what would that look like uh, to follow on to Jeff's question? Yeah, I mean, so I was I was just going to say on sort of South Asia broadly, I mean, you've got uh, Philippines and Vietnam, which are kind of sprinting ahead, and Indonesia is at sort of like a fast jog, I guess. Um, but then Thailand and Malaysia are really sort of sauntering along, you know, barely sort of walking at a sort of slow pace. Um I think, you know, this is, you're right, you know, Jeff, in your question, the, the politics is a, a big challenge in Thailand and Malaysia, and there's just not a significant sort of appetite for major structural reform, and they can't get kind of cohesive governments that get a, you know, strategic policy platform. Having said all of that, and to address Kevin's question, there are, you know, there are some implications that we'll be looking at. Um, and so in particular, uh, if a government has a very strong showing, what I mean by strong showing is like, you've got a dominant Party. We don't think any any individual party is going to have a majority, so there's going to that's very unlikely to happen. Plausible, but but unlikely, which means it will probably now happen. I've just said that. <laughs> um, but if you have a government where Umno is you know the sizable player, then it's more likely 
uh, the, the goods and services tax will be reintroduced after the election, not immediately, but you know, after a year or so. And this is very significant because when Pakatan Harapan came to power in 2018, I mean, one of the ways they beat Najib was, of course, the fact they had the, the charismatic Mahathir leading them at the time, not now. But also they promised to scrap GST because that was a very unpopular kind of reform that had been introduced by Najib. Uh, and Pakatan and Harapan, in particular Mahathir, had this kind of very clever way on the campaign trail of merging the issue of 1MDB corruption concerns and the GST by hammering home this message that basically yeah. they're taking money out of your pockets and putting it into their own pockets. Yeah. Uh, and I think that resonated. You haven't got that story now. But while that was very popular with the voters, you know, if you're a, a holder of Malaysian government debt, you're a bit more concerned about the long-term finances of Malaysia. So generally, from an investment point of view, in terms of Malaysia's long-term financial sustainability, reintroducing GST would be seen as a positive move, um, but it would be uh, something not that popular. Having said that, so that's for like a debt market investor. But having said that, an UMNO-led government, or if you have what you have now, which is basically Barisan National, Perakatan National, and some others, you're essentially talking about an ethno-nationalist uh, government that's primarily focused on promoting the interests of the ethnic Malay majority. And of course, you know, that means while they're not anti-FDI, there are all kinds of concerns that foreign investors have that stem from that, whether it's affirmative action policy, whether it's discrimination in sort of public procurement issues like that. So I think for a lot of foreign investors, they might actually prefer to see a Pakatan-Harapan government, which is um, by the way it's constituted, Pakatan Harapan is a sort of more diverse coalition. It's not, you know, so ethno-nationalist. Um, so essentially, yeah, if you're an FDI investor, maybe you want Pakatan Harapan to win, but it's marginal. And if you're a debt investor, you probably want Barisan National to, to be the, the leader of the government. But again, it's pretty marginal. We just want democracy to win. Arguably, it will be arguably... Arguably, by Southeast Asian standards, it will be a free and fair election, whoever wins. That's something. Being a member of the Eurasia Group, uh, thank you very much. On a very, very busy week. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much, guys. Great to speak to you again. Thanks to Peter Mumford of the Eurasia Group. Our producer and editor is Stephen Handoko. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. For a free trial of Kevin O'Rourke's Reformasi weekly newsletter, check out his website at reformasi.info. You can reach us at Instagram at onthelevel underscore media. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us. It helps. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.